following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Let's pray. Lord, I am grateful and reassured by the fact that you can read my mind and uh, you already know what I'm going to say. You already know what I want to ask. My selfish desires, my self-centered desires. You are my Father, my powerful, all-powerful Father. You've become my Father because of what You have done, Lord Jesus, for me. You freed me from my sin and death. It made me a son Son of the God of all of the universe. So I'm free to ask you, Father, to glorify yourself right now. Not to us, not to me, but to your name bring glory. Show us Christ. Show us his glory. Would you draw us to his glory? Would you enlarge your kingdom this morning? Would you see to it that your will is done? So would you give us what we need for this? And what we need most is for you, Holy Spirit, to come and to preach. Preach Your Word to us. Give us ears to hear. Give us pliable hearts that You may change us and mold us, transform us. Glorify Yourself in us. You are a glorious God. You are the lover of our souls. Praise your name. So show us yourself this morning, we pray. Amen. We're looking at Mark this morning, taking a break from Samuel. 
If you want to turn with me to Mark 3. It is not enough to feel close to God. It is not enough to feel close to God. My father-in-law was a pastor in Phoenix, Arizona. One of the previous pastors at his church, Ben Hayden, visited a man one night, one early morning at 3.30 in the morning, in the hospital, a man he had known for a long time. The man was dying, and everybody knew it. So Pastor Hayden asked him how it was between him and the Lord. Oh, he said, I've always believed in the Lord, and I know everything is shipshape. What do you believe about Jesus? Ben asked him. I've known God all my life, he said, and I've tried to observe godly standards. I've been honest in business, and I've worked hard. My friend, said Pastor Hayden, and I wouldn't be here if I wasn't your friend, answer a straight question. How is it between you and Jesus? And the man replied, I've never made a place in my life for Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. If I were to believe in Jesus, it would upset everything in my philosophy and my life. And I would have to rethink everything about me. By the grace of God, Pastor Hayden said, you have that kind of time. Rethink it. No, he said, I will die without Jesus. Why then do you think Jesus died? Asked Ben. Oh, I understand he died for sins. Your sins, said Ben. Perhaps, perhaps, but it's too late in my life to rethink the place of Jesus. And he died. For all we know, in that same state, It's not enough to feel close to God. Here's a man who worked hard, felt close to God, made his living, was probably a good neighbor by all accounts, and did it all in resolute rejection of his king. Tragically, it was only in his last moments that this rejection was revealed. And then it was seemingly too late. Those who are, who judge themselves closest to God are most in need of the warning that we will hear today from Mark. The text before us is not condemnation. It is not condemnation. It is not judgment. It is not judgment. Though it, you may be tempted to think that way. But the text before us this morning does warn us graciously, mercifully warn us about the possibility of being in close proximity to Jesus and at the same time being in opposition, continual opposition to His will. It is a very real danger for all of us, but especially those of us who have walked with God for some time and perhaps have been placed in some position of authority or leadership, though it is not limited to us. The ugly, life-wrecking sin of pride can lead any of us, any of us, into a life of self-righteous insanity. A life that sees our proximity to Jesus as giving us some right to control Him or manipulate Him for our own self-glorifying, self-centered, self-feeding ends. 
What we don't see in our insanity is that we're actually doing the work of Satan himself. Our insanity blinds us to this. So the warning today is God's mercy and grace to us, sweet grace to, to, to wake us up from our insanity. Now, if anything you hear today strikes deeply, know that it is meant to heal deeply. This passage has struck me and healed me deeply. So I, I pray for you the same way I have prayed for me. The Holy Spirit would come and, and as I've already prayed, give us a pliable heart that you, that you would be transformed by the grace in this passage. That you would be, have ears, ears to hear the warning. The Holy Spirit, come. Well, as I said, we're in the Gospel of Mark. And we'll be in chapter 3, but we need to take some time to set the context. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how Mark begins the gospel in chapter 1, verse 1. And this opening sentence strikes a note that, that repeats throughout the book, especially in this early section, Jesus has authority, period, over everything, period, Jesus is the Messiah with the authority of God Himself. He is the Son of God, possessing all the fullness of God, though also of man. Like any great king, Jesus has a herald, John, who announces His coming. John said He would baptize with water, but this king would come and baptize with God's Spirit. He will reunite God's people with God by means of the power of the Spirit. At His baptism, God the Father comes and expresses pure approval upon Jesus and the Spirit comes in power upon Jesus. Beautiful picture of approval and utter power. Total authority. Then in his desert trial, he demonstrates full authority over his own flesh, never giving in to Satan's temptations. Then he begins his ministry, in verse 15, preaching that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus exercises authority over men, calling his first disciples, and they leave their nets and follow but it is the authority of His teaching that astonishes people. In verse 22, an astonishment turns into amazement when Jesus casts out unclean spirits. His astonishing words are backed up by astonishing power, an astonishing authority. Jesus even has authority over the entire spiritual realm and every spiritual being. But that is not all. He has authority over the physical realm as He heals Peter's mother and a leper, and a paralytic, and many others. Now the picture turns a bit with the paralytic. As he's lowered before Jesus, Jesus' first words are not of physical healing, but of spiritual and eternal healing. He says in chapter 2, verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. It's the first words that he says. The religious leaders there, those who think they're closest to God, Think this is blaspheming. 
But Jesus replies, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Mark records that the man got up and all the amazed onlookers glorified God. We never saw anything like this. (laughs) Amazing. Authority to forgive sins. To deal with our crucial problem with God. Jesus, the Son of God, has all authority over everything, especially man's eternal spiritual destiny. He has the authority to forgive all of our sins. So it's no wonder that Levi, the hated tax collector slash official extortioner, does what anyone forgiven of such great sins would do. He celebrates and invites all of his other underworld friends to celebrate with him and to meet Jesus. you got to see this. you got to get this. His authority over sin and salvation is so complete, he even has authority to make obsolete the old religious order. Calling the Sabbath made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. But then in chapter 3, disturbing opposition appears. Some of it is expected. We, we plainly see it coming. But some of it is totally unexpected. Disturbing. Shocking even. Scandalous. The crowds following Jesus have swelled and so does the vitriolic hatred for Jesus in the hearts of the religious authorities. When Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath at the beginning of chapter 3, the religious leaders vow to destroy him. And still the crowds follow with more healings, more casting out of unclean spirits. Incredibly, Chapter 3, verse 11, we see the only correct verbal identification of Jesus by someone in this section, by demons. He is still widely, and as we will see, gravely misunderstood. So Jesus withdraws and names 12 to be his disciples, his apostles, his official emissaries, in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. They are to do three things, and the the order here is key. They are to be with Jesus, intensely learning from Him. They are to do His will. In this case, preaching His gospel and casting out unclean spirits. And they are to do it all under His authority. They are to be with Him, to do His will under His authority. This is the picture of true discipleship. So as we turn now to the rest of the chapter, we're going to see a warning coming right on the heels of this this picture of ideal discipleship. And it, it comes right on the heels of this picture because we are so prone as humans to twist the ideal to our own ends. We are so prone to twist it for ourselves. We need to hear and heed the warning before us this morning. I'll begin reading in verse 20 to the end of the chapter. 
Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The shocking word of the Lord. Now, Mark has structured the story in the form of a sandwich. And uh, this is not the last time he'll do this in Mark. He does this a lot. He begins a new part in the narrative, but then he records some interruption to the story, only to resume the story again. While the interruption at first seems unrelated, it actually colors and defines how we should understand the two flanking pieces. In this case, the two flanking pieces of the story take place in a house, probably Peter's house. And the crowd is filling the house and surrounding the house. And in both sides, those closest to Jesus, or so they think, his family, try to seize him, to take control of him. And note, instead of family, some translations in verse... Um, 21, have the more ambiguous his own people or friends. But it seems that family is the best translation here and the best way to understand the passage. So Jesus' family hear about the crowds and fear that he's lost his mind. Berserk would not be a bad translation here. (laughs) So they try to physically bind him and take him home. They seek to take control of him and do what they think he should be doing. Maybe out of shame or embarrassment. Maybe out of fear that the family name will be besmirched. Um, It's probably a mixture of deep loving concern and deep fundamental missing the point about Jesus' mission, about who he is. 
So the family finds itself ironically on the outside in verse 31, calling out to him through the crowd. So in this particular scene, those who think they know him best are actually the ones deeply opposed to his mission. It's not just the scribes and Pharisees, but his own family who now oppose him, though they don't realize the extent of it. But the interruption by the scribes will shed some light and give our Lord the chance to communicate in the form of parable something to the scribes, something to them. So in verse 22, an official party of scribes comes down from Jerusalem and they readily accept that Jesus has done miraculous things. That's utterly clear. They just attribute the miracles to Satan's empowering, not God's. He's possessed by Beelzebul, they say, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Now the the word Beelzebul probably comes from a Hebrew word meaning something like house of Baal. Baal, you may remember, is the false god of the Old Testament who was thought to be the chief of the false gods. So in the Hebrew mindset, the name came to be came to take on the meaning of something like the prince of demons, the house of Baal. So in response to seeing God's powerful authority, they call it Satan's. They are approaching remarkable, total Blasphemy. It is blasphemy. They are just approaching total blasphemy. But Jesus' response is even more remarkable. Instead of lowering the hammer, (laughs) He calls them to Himself, this God-man of all authority, graciously, mercifully calls them to Himself and warns them in parables. Can Satan cast out Satan? Verse 23. No. A kingdom or house divided against itself cannot stand. Come on. Verse 26. Jesus implies that all that he is doing is actually a rising up against this house. In fact, in verse 27, Jesus gives us a clear picture of his mission to bind the strong man and to plunder his house. Jesus' mission is to invade, to make war, to plunder. The gracious warning, of course, turns disturbing in verses 28 and 29 and 30. There is a sin that cannot be forgiven, this blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this is an eternal sin. Why? Why an eternal sin? To understand, we need to remember John's statement about Jesus in chapter 1. That though John would baptize with water, Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus' saving work could be summarized by this statement, baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to free sinners. He came to free you and I from our slavery to sin. To free us from the domain of death. And this salvation is accomplished through the Holy Spirit. As we saw at Jesus' baptism, God the Son in all His work is empowered by God the Spirit. And with the total pleasure of God the Father. The religious leaders have looked at that empowering of the Holy Spirit and said, Satan, 
This is the devil. Jesus is warning them that they are approaching a point of no return, a point of total hardening, since they have clearly seen God and called it Satan. The very warning implies the possibility of repentance, of turning. He is giving them the warning, you are approaching the cliff. Now, stop for a second and say, if you are concerned that you think that you have committed this sin, Let's look back at verse 28. Look with me at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Did you see? Did you read that? All sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they whatever blasphemies they utter? Those like Peter who abandoned Jesus and cursed and denied that they knew Him, forgiven. Those like Paul who lived in spitting rage against Christ Himself, forgiven. The fact that you have even an inkling of anxiety about this means that you have not fallen to the point of such hardening. We are often drawn by fear and wonder to verse 29, but verse 28 should stop us in our tracks in fear and wonder at the amazing breadth of God's grace. Amazing. Should bring out in us deep praise. But it also does not mean that there is nothing else here for us. By sandwiching this, this warning between the two situations relating to Jesus' family and followers, Mark is alerting us that there is a similar pitfall here for religious people. For people who think and feel that they are close to God. That they are close to Jesus. And who presume upon that. Who think that they have some claim upon Jesus because of that felt proximity. The warning was obvious for the religious leaders. Plain as day. But Jesus' family was approaching a similar cliff. In their minds, they were close to Jesus, and so they thought they had a right to direct Him. They took pride in their perceived closeness to Jesus. So Jesus, in verses 33 through 35, gives a similar but more subtle rebuke to His own family. Who are my mother and my brothers? Those who are with Jesus and do God's will. They actually occupy a place, Jesus' family, similar to that of the scribes, though it is more subtle. They are misjudging who Jesus is in standing in direct opposition to His will and mission. In trying to bind Jesus, in trying to tame Him, and control Him, this, this King with all authority, they were unknowingly doing Satan's work of opposing Jesus. They were presuming that their special place gave them special claims upon Jesus. And if Jesus' own family can be in danger of occupying this perilous place, so can you and I. So can I. Well, that's the text. We're building up today to this main point. No one can bind Jesus to their life. But Jesus graciously binds some to His. 
so that His authoritative will is done for their joy and for the world. I'll say that again. No one can bind Jesus to their life, but Jesus graciously binds some to His so that His authoritative will is done for their joy and the world. Now, I want to make two observations from the text that elaborate on this big point. The first is this. To try to bind Jesus to our will results in an insane life that approaches blasphemy. To try to bind Jesus to our will results in an insane life that approaches blasphemy. So what am I saying when I say insanely trying to bind Jesus or divert Him to our will? What do I mean? Well, it can come in many forms. But in general, it's when we set our minds on the things of man and expect or try to manipulate Jesus into following our mission in life. It's limiting Jesus' mission in our life to a narrow, self-centered set of goals and objectives based on man's thinking. It, I mean, it sounds crazy when you think about it, really, but insanity is one of the chief marks of humanity. I mean, that's who we are. That's what pride does to us. It makes us insane. It makes us crazy. The real problem is that to constrain Jesus is to oppose Him. And to oppose Him while at the same time claiming to worship Him and follow Him, well, that's insane. And it's near blasphemous. And all too common. This could show itself in the ministry leader who feels close to God because of the esteem of their leadership position and only when they feel people's admiration. They want Jesus around in their life, yes, but He becomes less of a king and a savior and more of a servant to their ego. It effectively puts a big roadblock in front of His mission with a detour arrow pointing the way to our mission. And when we oppose His mission, we are, whether we realize it or not, doing Satan's work for Him. We are supporting the goals of Satan. We can, without realizing it, work tirelessly in the church and all the while be in league with Satan. Does that, does that sound like an extreme statement? Am I the crazy one here? <laughs> um, well, please remember what Jesus said to Peter. In Mark chapter 8, verse 33, when, when Jesus told the disciples that His mission was to suffer and be rejected and be killed and rise again three days later. Oh, no, 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 Peter says. So let's, not, let's not take things too, too far here. That's crazy talk. It's crazy talk, Lord. Jesus' reply, But turning and seeing His disciples, He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan! For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We can too easily put our own needs first and twist and justify Jesus' mission into, into something small and pedestrian and man-made that we can stick in our pocket. Sometimes it's not running berserk, but simply keeping Him at a safe distance. It's keeping Him over there. I mean, yeah, He's there, I can see Him, but, but it's over there. And one day follows another, and another, 
and another. And before long, a life is built, but not upon Jesus as king, but Jesus as a bolt-on savior, an important accessory to my, other, my religious life. He's Jesus, the cosmic Pez dispenser, giving me the candy I need if I just manipulate him right. Jesus, the antacid Savior, who's there to just make me feel better about myself when I get a little indigestion about who I am. He gets me out of my jams and forgives my sins. That's his job description. But the danger here is that this is a life that's unfruitful to what's most important to our king. In God's universe, what's most important is what God thinks of us. It's no coincidence that Jesus' parable of the sower follows right after the passage that we're looking at today in Mark 4. Verses 18 and 19 should arrest us. Jesus said, and others are the one, he's, he's describing the parable now, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Jesus is talking about people who know the gospel but are not Christians. They think they know God, but God does not know them. Perhaps you've been a very religious person, perhaps in another religious system. But your religion has been meant to earn something with God, but you've never been drawn to Him. Not to earn something with Him, but to simply be with Him. You've never been drawn by something alien to you. If so, then this passage is talking to you. It's warning you. I don't share this with you to disturb you, just for the sake of disturbing you. I I share this because with whatever love God has given me for you, I, I, I hope that you would see yourself as you truly are. And seeing yourself that you would abhor your insane attempts to try to manipulate him or keep him at a distance or put him in your pocket. That you would drop it all and run to him and rest at his feet and learn to do his will for your joy, as we will see, as I hope you will see. The life of false discipleship is a life of churning and fretting to get what we want. It's an insane life, thinking that we can put this untamed, sovereign Lord in a little box to serve our little whims. But He is not a tame Savior. He will not be bound to us. But we must be bound to Him. Jesus is out to bring every corner of your life under His blessed, peaceful control. But the false disciple, the insane disciple, says... No, Lord, just this one sin, you know, the one that I really feel bad about. If if you could just deal with that one, everything will be okay. Could you do that? And tragically, he must let that sin remain because God will not be bound to our limited desires. Jesus is out to continue his plundering work to do in every tongue, in every tribe, in every nation, in every dark corner of the earth what he has done for you, Christian. But the false disciple takes little notice. Instead of asking for more workers to be sent into God's fields of harvest, 
He prays instead for God to continue his quality of life. The false disciple leads a life of sweet opposition and pleasant self-absorption, an amiable obstacle to Jesus Christ's mission of war. Jesus is out to bind and plunder, but the false disciple's war cry is, what about me? It is not enough to feel close to God. The true disciple sits close enough to Jesus to listen like a child. And upon hearing, he does what he hears. He picks up on Christ's mission and he makes it his own. There are those who are as close to Jesus as a brother or a sister or a mother. There are those who are with him, resting upon him. They have been drawn to him by something. Something that draws us into a deep childlike allegiance that's thicker than blood. There is an incredible two-edged truth to all this. The greatest impediment to God's grace, to God's unmitigated favor in your life, is not your sin. All sins will be be forgiven the children of man. The greatest impediment to God's grace in your life is pride and self-righteousness. It is self-centeredness and self-sufficiency. I can say this because I've seen it in myself. Those of you who only have mountains of sin and a well-worn spot at the foot of the cross and a jealousy to do His will, He calls you brother or sister or mother. But if you are delusionally trying to limit or direct Jesus to your own ends, He not only stands apart from you, but opposed to you. Because you oppose Him. You may not realize it, but you do. You are in danger of living a blasphemous life, a life lived in opposition to His purposes. You need His grace. (laughs) What you need. Which leads us to the second point. But His grace draws us to be with Him in restful, active allegiance. His grace draws us to be with Him in restful, active allegiance. We need to be drawn back to Him. We don't have it in ourselves. We need to be drawn back to Him to be with Him. The true follower of Christ no longer needs to churn and earn. He rests. God Himself has wooed Him back to Himself by His grace. And He does this through His Spirit. Before we go any further, know this. With heavy warning, God always provides heavy grace, heavy mercy, heavy forgiveness. No matter your sin, no matter your blasphemies of deed or life, no matter... Jesus said, whatever blasphemies. Do you believe that? Whatever. God's forgiveness is available to you if you will only obey His gospel. If you will only but repent and believe. Believe Him. 
But your pride and yourself, they got to go. They got to go. All can be forgiven if you will put everything on Christ. This is truly amazing, heavy grace. And if you're like me, you need His grace to repent as you should repent. You know you should repent, but you you sense in yourself that you don't have it in you to repent as you should repent. And so the very best thing we can do right now is to pray, God, help me repent as I should repent. Grant me that grace, Holy Spirit. Lord, I repent of my pride and my self-sufficiency, but would you help me in my repentance? Help me grieve as I should. Help me see you as I should. So what does this look like? How does this work? Well, he does this first by changing us down deep. He changes our affections. He changes us so that we truly do desire Him. That's what His grace does if it comes to someone. It changes us. It draws us to Him. If the Word has at all described you today in a faulty stance toward Christ, He has provided the way out. The only way that Jesus could rightly forgive the sins of the world is by giving Him, giving it Himself as the solution to those sins. He has become sin for us. Our sin on the cross. God took whatever blasphemies and put them on Him. He became sin, the one who knew no sin, so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. So that we might stand righteous before Him. That's right. The the right punishment for every one of my, my thoughts and my deeds of rebellion And and just the fact that I am a rebel by birth placed upon Him. And He placed on me all of that approval and pleasure that God the Father displayed upon His Son at His baptism. Can you believe that? I mean, it it is too good to be true and it is true, the Gospel is. All of that pleasure... All of that approval that the Father displayed to the Son upon me. Because of what Christ has done. And that that same power, that same spirit of power that came upon Jesus at His baptism, He has given to me. My goodness. Grace after grace. Not because of me, but so that He would get much glory. But I get everything. Just have to bask in that for a second. Pray that the Holy Spirit would would cause us to remember that. That He would cause us to remember the Christian, the, the specific ways that God has done that and brought that about in your life. That He would cause you to revel in it, bask in it, rejoice. My goodness. But we are a forgetful people. Uh, we need that same Spirit to remind us of these truths and to see Jesus, to see Him in His glory at the cross. We need that to draw us back and to woo us back again. 
Not to get busy with a long list of details and, and, and disciplines, although we'll get to that in a second, but to simply be with Jesus, to, to read our Bibles again, not because I got a Bible, a Bible study coming up on Thursday morning, but to just be with Jesus, to watch Him, just to be with Him, to pray, not because I'm an elder and that's my first job description item in the Bible, just to be with Jesus. Because that's what you do. You see Him and you gotta, you got to talk to Him. you got to ask Him. Lord, glorify Yourself. <laughs> Enlarge Your kingdom. Do over there what You've done to me. So I, I call you today to, to pray. To, to, to pray for yourself and to pray for this church. To pray for your gospel community. That the Spirit would come upon us and draw us. That the Spirit would let us see Jesus. And that His grace and His awesome authority, wielded in perfect love and perfect power, would draw us back to Him. Not to churn and earn, but to rest at His feet. Holy Spirit, Let His goodness like a fetter bind our wandering hearts to Jesus. Would you do this? And as we sit by Jesus, listening, the the Spirit causes us to stand astonished at His authority again. His authority. He begins to to bring us under that authority again in in joyful, childlike submission. Because of our new affections, He he creates in us a a strong allegiance to Jesus. In the same way a, 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 a young daughter has a strong allegiance to her daddy. We want to be with Jesus like a child. His authority no longer scares us. It's not scary anymore. It's comforting. It brings rest. Not only that, but it propels us. His mission becomes our mission. Our mission is swallowed up and disappears and dissolves inside of His mission. So that sin that really makes us that really makes me feel bad. We no longer stop there because we we see that He has all authority over all of me. And and by His authority, I, I read in His Word that He has washed me, that He has united me to Him. And I... On the authority of His Word, on the authority of what He has done, I, I count myself dead to sin and alive to God. And, and when I look at that one sin, the one sin that makes me feel really bad, I, I see all the others around it and I realize that they make Him, every last one of them, feel bad. And so I, I say, no, Lord, not just that one, all of them. Wipe them all out. Get them all out. Deal with them all. Here I am. I'm yours. Whatever, God. 
And when this happens, something else happens. The, the Spirit wakes us up. And He allows us to see more clearly Christ's mission. And He, he reminds us that, that we were the ones who were once bound and enslaved in sin and death. And that He plundered for us, for me. I, I realize, oh my goodness, I, I, I've forgotten that. I've forgotten that. And the Spirit awakens in us a new jealousy for that to continue someplace else, wherever. We no longer try to tame Jesus' mission to our little version, but we finally submit ourselves to His great mission of binding and plundering. Our battle cry becomes Isaiah's, Lord, send me. Our battle cry becomes the Lord's prayer. Father of all power, glorify your name. I, I got all these other things that I'm tempted to pray for, but no, 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 no. You are my powerful daddy. I'm going to trust you. Glorify your name. Enlarge your kingdom. Would you save some peoples? Make your will be done there in Doro camp, in those, in those Islamic countries here in this valley, on my cul-de-sac. Lord, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you, so would you use it? Would you wield it? Would you save? And, Daddy, can I go? Can I come with? Can I be of use? Would you glorify yourself through me? Lastly, the Spirit encourages us and keeps us bound to Christ by means of friends. By the means of friends. Not just any friends, but uh, little bands of arsonist conventions. You know? Groups of two or more who set each other afire for Christ. People who can't help but, but talk about Christ. They, they gossip Christ. They just, it just spills right out. Who catch each other on fire for Him again. Do you have someone like that in your life? Can you identify someone like that in your gospel community that you need to sidle up to and catch a little bit of what they got? Do you have that? You need it. We all need that. We all need people to to tap us on the shoulder and, and whisper, hey, you are insane. <laughs> you haven't touched your Bible in weeks? You are crazy. You are starving yourself. I love you. That's why I'm telling you this. You are insane. Your self-sufficiency, your, your, your pride, what are you doing? You've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten who, what Christ has done for you. You've forgotten who Christ is. He is your life. He is the lover of your soul. What are you, what are you doing not praying? What? What? Crazy person? Stop it. Stop all this churning. Stop all the activities. Stop your berserk life and sit at His feet. We, we all need people 
to come alongside us and love and speak the truth to us. I need that. My goodness, do I need that. Praise the Lord for a wife who's done that to me this week. Are you that kind of friend? Does your affection for Christ spill over and fall out of your mouth and catch others on fire? And prone to wander, we all need to sit at the feet of Jesus with others. We all need to sit at the feet of Jesus and engage in His mission with others. But under His authority, it's no coincidence that He started the Great Commission by telling the disciples that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to Him. That authority should comfort us and propel us to the nations to share this gospel. The safest place in all the earth is at the feet of Jesus. Though it may take us to the ends of the earth, the safest place is with Him. So will you drop your mission And will you make His your own? Will you? I pray that the Holy Spirit would come today and move us, bring us to repentance, and bring us to joyful rest at His feet. That is the safest place. That is the place of life to sit at the feet of the lover of your soul. Life is not found anywhere else than right there at His feet at the foot of the cross. I want to close by letting our Lord have the last word from the end of Matthew 11. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy, And my burden is light. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that You would continue to preach I pray that You would not let anyone here see the warning without seeing the grace. Please preach Christ. Please continue to let Your Word preach Him and display Him to us. And let His glories, let His authority, let His amazing grace draw us not to a bunch of New Year's resolutions, but to rest at His feet to be with Him. 
Lord Jesus, whatever, wherever, just so long as I'm with you, glorify your name, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.